listeners welcome to itihas a indic history podcast and you're listening to episode 33 of the season vijayanagara in the last episode we looked at the lives of devadasis and courtesans in the 15th and 16th century vijayanagara empire we had learned about attitudes towards prostitution and the devadasi system in contemporary vijayanagara society and how these women managed to stand the system on its head and carve out an independent social space for themselves a social space where they could to some extent control their own destinies in a male dominated society in this and the next few episodes we shall look at the nayamkara system which was one of the most fascinating aspects of the vijayanagara empire and its legacy we will see in depth how the vijayanagara rulers innovated on the previous patterns of political and administrative instruments in the south to build a robust framework to rule over the ever expanding vijayanagara empire if listeners remember we had discussed the patterns of centralized power structures that prevailed in many of the kingdoms in the south which preceded vijayanagara We had looked at the kingdoms of Kakatiyas, Hoysalas, Pandyas and Yadavas right before the invasions launched by the Khiljis and Tughlaqs at the end of the 13th century. We delved in depth into the political atmosphere pertaining to the rise and fall of these four competing kingdoms and in turn the events that acted as catalysts in the birth of Vijayanagara Empire. We explored the nature of these centralized power structures their strengths and weaknesses if you haven't listened to the foundation series you should check it out for a detailed backstory and much better context as an empire starts declining the military assistance of the vassals samantas nayakas or subordinate rulers becomes all the more important there comes a point when the ruling power or the sovereign is literally helpless and totally dependent on these nayakas this in turn would feed into the increase of their political prominence and their own ambitions of independence some of these would challenge the suzerainty of the empire which would invariably necessitate warfare to suppress the rebellion and this again would chip away the strength and stability of the empire Also during these times the local chieftains or nayakas themselves would wage war on each other to gain an upper hand further weakening the central power structure The norm was to give a free hand to the vassal states to manage their own affairs autonomously with least interference in their internal matters Of course as long as they chose to remain loyal keep contributing to royal coffers and send their share of men and arms to the empire's army this then meant that there would always be these centrifugal forces within the empire's provinces which were always at odds with the centripetal forces of the empire so as one can see the central power structures take up consistent measures and significant effort with the help of armed forces to keep the nobility samantas or vassals in check it wasn't as simple as having a standing army to keep them in check the concentration of army in the capital city under the direct control of the emperor 
though assisted by a number of commanders, would be of little use. For quickly mobilizing the force at short notice to battlefields. Whenever a Samantha rose in revolt or an enemy king invades into the territory. To deal with this problem of oscillating loyalties and rebellion of the vassals, coupled with the problems of logistics, a robust instrument of administrative control had to be innovated and put in place. And this came in the form of the Nayamkara system. The local chieftains and vassals under Vijayanagara Empire were generally known as Nayakas, as they held the term meaning a leader as an honorific suffix in their name. And hence the system of appointing such local chieftains came to be known as Nayamkara system or sometimes also known as Amaranayamkara system. Inscriptions of the Vijayanagara times refer to the term Nayamkara to denote the territory that was assigned to a Nayaka as well as an administrative designation of the Nayaka himself. Historians in general hold that the Namkara system came into existence as an administrative urgency in the imperial power structures in South India about the 10th and 11th centuries. Burton Stein, a reputed historian, supposed that the system was actually a modification of the system employed by the imperial cholas and that had also manifested in the politico-military arrangements of the Hoysala kingdom that preceded the Vijayanagara empire. But the historian P.V. Parabrahma Shastri rightly points out that the Nayamkara system was probably in vogue even in the Kakatiya kingdom in the early medieval Andhra Desa, having been introduced by the Kakatiya warrior queen Rani Rudrama Devi and improved upon by her grandson, and a worthy successor, King Prataparudra. If listeners remember, this is the same Prataparudra that we saw in the Foundation series, and who had fought valiantly, got captured, and he then chose to commit suicide instead of being humiliated in the Sultan's court as a prisoner. He had ultimately chosen to commit suicide on the banks of Narmada River while being transported in chains to Delhi. N. Venkatramanaya, a historian, explained the Nayamkara system as based on holding of a land by Nayakas, having been granted by the Vijayanagara emperor under a military tenure called Amaram, and hence they were called Amaranayakas, in return of which they had the obligation of rendering military service to the latter. To better understand the Nayamkara system in Vijayanagara, let us first go back to the Kakatiya period. Like I indicated earlier, there is some strong evidence of Kakatiya innovation in this space. The Associate Professor of History from Northern Arizona University, Cynthia Talbot's research in medieval South India, shed some light on how this system evolved to a great degree under Kakatiyas. And we shall look at it now. The Kakatiyas from the time of their emergence as a sovereign power in the mid-12th century up to the mid to late 13th century were a highly decentralized polity. As in many other Indian states of the time period, the Kakatiya kings had limited power and their kingdom was more of a confederacy of various chieftains and nobles 
who all enjoyed considerable autonomy. In fact, the early Kakatiya polity seems to have been quite decentralized even by the standards of the contemporary Indian kingdoms. Many Kakatiya subordinates didn't even acknowledge the Kakatiyas as their sovereigns in epigraphic records and assumed independent titles like Maharaja. For all intents and purposes, the early Kakatiya state was essentially a collection of allied chieftains and nobles, with the Kakatiya monarch having limited power outside of his immediate locality. As if acknowledging this state of affairs, none of the Kakatiya monarchs, with the sole exception of Ganapati Deva, even bothered to assume high imperial titles like Maharaja the Raja, great king of kings, or claimed to be Kshatriyas, descended from the solar or lunar dynasties, as the Chalukyas and Cholas had done. The only title that the Kakatiya monarchs used consistently was Mahamandaleshwara, the same title that was used by many of their subordinates. And they made no claim to be of high Varna status. Cynthia Talbot divides the Kakatiya subordinates into two main classes, nobles and officers. These two classes are differentiated from one another based on the importance they gave to their ancestry in epigraphic records. The nobles hailed from well-established, powerful families, and their records frequently contain long and elaborate genealogies. The officers, on the other hand, hailed from more lowly and humble families, and as a result, their epigraphic records do not contain the elaborate genealogies found in the noble inscriptions. An important consequence of this lack of distinguished pedigree was that officers were more loyal and more dependent on the Kakatiya monarch himself, as they lacked the support of their own powerful families, unlike the nobles. The noble subordinates of the Kakatiyas can be further subdivided into two subgroups, princes and chiefs. The princes are those nobles who claimed ancestry from a notable dynasty, like the Chalukyas or Cholas, as well as Kshatriya status. They often use the title Mahamandaleshwara as well as the royal status title Maharaja. The chiefs, on the other hand, did not claim descent from a notable dynasty, claiming descent instead from locally dominant rather than pan-regional lineages like the Cholas and Chalukyas. These nobles generally did not use the titles Mahamandaleshwara or Maharaja. Instead, they used titles like Mahasamanta and Mandalika that were more indicative of feudatory status. Several of these chiefs also possessed the lowly status title of Reddy, which would become dominant in subsequent centuries. This category of nobles originated largely from Telangana, rather than the coastal region. The early Kakatiya state was based on forging subsidiary alliances with prominent noble lineages. Generally, Kakatiya hegemony over a particular locality was enforced not directly but through an allied lineage of local prominence. 
such lineages that were part of this kakatiya confederation include the recharla reddies the malayalas the cherakus of sri salam the kotas of dharnikota the yadavas of addanki the chalukyas of vengi and the kayasthas in southern andhra these lineages generally enjoyed considerable autonomy and seem to have functioned as largely independent units this kakatiya strategy of building a state on the back of numerous alliances with local powers reached its peak during the long reign of ganapati deva it was ganapati deva who first established kakatiya hegemony in coastal andhra through multiple military campaigns and in the process absorbed many new lineages into the kakatiya network including several of the ones i mentioned earlier alliances were forged with notable noble lineages through matrimony as for example when ganapati deva's daughter rudrama devi was married to veerabhadra a prince of the old chalukya dynasty of vengi it was also ganapati deva alone among kakatiya monarchs who attempted to assert a hierarchy of dominance over these newly included noble lineages ganapati deva assumed practices that were typical of indian kingdoms especially some of the brahmanical indian kingdoms including extending patronage to agraharas claiming the status of kshatriya and assuming imperial titles ganapati deva was attempting to create an indian empire that was typical to previous empires like those of the chalukyas and cholas it was to be an empire based heavily on ritual dominance with the king leading atop a hierarchical society of kings each with their own mandala or sphere of political influence however ganapati deva's drive to establish such an empire ultimately failed late in his reign the resurgent pandyas under jatavarman sundara pandyan managed to defeat the kakatiyas and end their attempt to expand into tamil nadu not only that they also succeeded in asserting their dominance over nellore in southern andhra around the same time the eastern gangas of orissa were pushing in from the north and had expanded their political influence up to the godavari river banks by 1262 ce in that year the aged ganapati deva who must have been well in his 70s if not 80s retired and handed over power to his successor his daughter rudrama devi over the next few decades the kakatiya state would come to the brink of collapse but out of this cauldron of chaos and instability a new path of political development would be forged which would decisively shape the future history of south india when rudrama devi ascended the throne she found a state beleaguered with a multitude of problems the fact that she was a female did not help matters many of the nobles seemed to have resented the fact that they were ruled by a woman and rose in revolt against her with the aid of a few loyal subordinates who were virtually all of non noble humble origin rudrama devi was able to crush these rebellions and retain the throne under rudrama devi we see the emergence of a new group of subordinates 
belonging to the officer that is non noble category called angarakshas also in english translates to bodyguards these officers seem to have formed a personal retinue of the queen and constituted a dependable source of military power that she could use to assert her power these were men who had proven their loyalty and steadfastness in the times of turmoil significantly these angarakshas also bear the title of nayaka indicating military leadership during the reign of rudramadevi we begin to see a crucial shift in the composition of the kakatiya political network previously it was nobles who had dominated the politics of the region with the importance of nobles to the kakatiyas reaching its height during the reign of ganapati deva however the unreliability of the nobles during the reign of rudramadevi prompted a drastic reconfiguration of this power structure in the period after 1270 ce we see subordinates belonging to the officer category increase substantially in a number compared to the nobles and in at least a few cases officers working directly under the kakatiyas replace noble lineages as the dominant local powers because officers lack the long standing hereditary claims to a local lordship and support of powerful families that nobles possessed they were much more likely to obey the kakatiya monarch in addition because their political authority came directly from the kakatiya monarch the prevalence of officers in the countryside after rudramadevi's reign indicates that the kakatiya state was beginning to centralize power and more effectively exercise state authority throughout the territory under its hegemony the mechanism through which the kakatiyas under queen rudramadevi and her grandson prataparudra consolidated their authority was the namkara system the term namkara is first mentioned in an inscription dated to 1269 CE and refers to an office granted to nayakas it seems that rudramadevi faced with an increasingly unreliable nobility granted nayankara rights to her loyal non-noble subordinates as a reward for their service the holders of nayankaras called nayankapu varulu in telugu were assigned a block of territory generally referred to as the sthalam which consisted of several villages varying from 18 to 60 it seems that these nayakas or nayankaras had the right to the revenue of these territorial blocks as we have inscriptions of nayakas granting remissions on taxes levied within their nayankaras although the evidence is not vast it also seems that nayankara holders were expected to provide troops for the central kakatiya government an inscription in the nayankara of maidevalanka dated to 1317 ce mentions a specific type of tax called bantalu ayamu which literally means soldier tax hence it seems likely that nayankaras were revenue assignments granted to loyal subordinates 
and that these subordinates were then expected to use at least a portion of this revenue to raise and maintain troops for the Kakatiya state. The granting of Nayankaras had the double effect of building a loyal base of officers, many of whom were low-status Shudras, and simultaneously weakening the power of local nobles, who were previously the dominant subordinates. The proportion of nobles among the Kakatiya subordinates fell rapidly after the late 13th century, from a high of nearly 50% under Ganapati Deva to just 10% under Prataparudra. Unlike the nobles, the Kakatiya Nayakas did not actually own the territories that they were granted as Nayankara. They were granted the right to collect revenue from the locality and possibly maintain troops. But they did not receive actual land ownership rights. It was probably to prevent them from developing their own local basis of power and becoming new nobles themselves. In this sense, the institution of Nayankara was similar to that of Ikta in the Delhi Sultanate and other Islamic states. As with Islamic sultans and Iktas, the Kakatiya monarch reserved the right to revoke Nayankaras and also to transfer Nayakas between different provinces or localities. For example, the Kakatiya officer Gundaya Nayaka was transferred from the Sthalas of Gurindala and Pingala in 1297 CE to the region of Palnadu, which is modern-day Guntur district, in 1299 CE. These localities are a considerable distance from each other and suggests that Nayakas were not allowed to remain holding one specific territory as Nayankara for long. Lest they build up their own independent base of power and challenge the central authority. Hence, Kakatiya Nayakas represented a class of political agents that the central government in Varangal could use to exercise their authority throughout their dominions. In contrast, the old nobles of the early Kakatiya state remained entrenched in their respective localities and governed as de facto independent rulers, opposing the central government's drive to exercise more pervasive authority. Naturally, in their drive to extend central state authority into new localities and into the countryside, the Kakatiya monarchs and their Nayaka agents occasionally encountered resistance from entrenched local groups. This resistance came not only from the local nobles, but also from the local peasant groups and assemblies. An interesting case in point comes from the Nayankara of Nayaka Ralanka in Kunduristhala. An individual from Pinapadu village located in Eralankas, Nayankara, organized a protest against the taxes imposed by Nayaka Eralanka. As a result of the protest, Eralanka cancelled the taxes and recorded an apology to the local peasants. So it seems that the agents of the central government and local groups occasionally clashed over the issue of taxation. As we see in centralizing states throughout the world and throughout history. Nonetheless, it seems quite likely that the Kakatiya state in the 14th century 
was organized much more effectively than it was 100 years earlier the powerful old noble lineages like the chalukyas and kayatstas were reduced in power and in their place a new class of nayaka officers largely of low humble origins emerged as the dominant subordinates of the new kakatiya state the modern day dominant castes of andhra and telangana including reddies kammas and velamas all trace their origins to these new kakatiya nayakas of the late 13th and early 14th century after the fall of varangal to the forces of the delhi sultanate in 1323 ce these nayakas established their own states throughout andhra and telangana and these nayakas succeeded in driving out the forces of delhi sultanate within a decade of the fall of kakatiyas although a powerful indigenous state like kakatiyas never again materialized in this region the memory of kakatiyas and their institutions would live on until modern times an 18th century telugu chronicle velugoti vamsavali records the history of the shudra velama chieftains and begins by noting the velama origins as nayaka officers under the kakatiyas as per cynthia talbert the institution of nayankara spread south in the 14th century to the new state of vijayanagara where it would further develop to become the dominant socio-political and military institution throughout south india now that we understood the kakatiya background behind the innovation in the political administrative aspects of managing an empire and the resulting precursor of the nayamkara system of vijayanagara which we will delve in depth in the next episode this episode would be incomplete if i didn't tell you about the ikta system of the delhi sultanate under the lodi dynasty which was the contemporary of vijayanagara in the 15th century understanding this will help the listeners paint a contrasting picture of nayankara system when looked at in comparison with either its predecessors or contemporaries this will also help one appreciate the rich history behind the evolution of these various systems there is an interesting paper written on the ikta system under the lodis by iktidar hussain siddiqui in the 1961 proceedings of the indian history congress volume 24 which i will be referring to as my primary source on it the history of the ikta system can be traced back to the establishment of the delhi sultanate in northern india the early sultans assigned iktas to their nobles for their maintenance instead of cash salaries the nobles who were assigned small iktas were called iktadars while the large iktas were assigned to high nobles partly for the maintenance of their family and large contingents of sawars also known as horsemen and partly for the administration these high nobles were called muktadis their accounts were settled at the department of the vizirat by the time of the lodi dynasty the iktadars seemed to have been officially called wajadars but the land assignments were still called iktas the terms muktadi hakim and amir were also used by people for the assignees 
the iktas were assigned to the nobles excluding the land grants given to the scholars sayyids and pious persons by the sultan for their maintenance the iktas differed in size it might be a paragana less than a paragana sarkar or the whole province the wajadar muktadi or hakim whosoever he might be had no right over these land grants which are called as imlak wazif and wajai maash think of them as religious or uh, holy places over which the local government had no right sultan sekandar is reported to have written in the farmans that the imlak and wazif were excluded from the ikta if any noble was reported to have disobeyed sultan's farman by oppressing these landholders he was severely punished at the same time no noble could occupy any land which was not specifically mentioned in the farman the iktas were not always granted to the nobles on the basis of hereditary or on the conception of the kingdom being tribal property the assignees could be transferred from their iktas if it was thought necessary it is also noteworthy that the muktadis of the lodi period were not subject to frequent transfers like the mughal nobles under akbar and his successors the muktadis or wajadas were not transferred from their iktas if they did not lose the confidence of the sultan there were certain nobles whose descendants also remained in occupation of their iktas as their successors provided they were worthy of the rank and office of their fathers if the sultan considered the sons of any deceased noble unworthy of his office and rank he could set aside their claim the sons could succeed their fathers in their office and rank as a favor from the sultan when the assignment was made the assignee was allowed to have complete right over the revenue of his ikta he had to pay an annual amount of the surplus revenue to the center this was fixed in the light of the previous records of the paraganas and the villages they had to get their accounts checked with the central revenue officials if all these formalities were fulfilled properly the ikta assignee was allowed to administer his ikta as he thought better he kept the peace and order of his ikta if the iktas yielded a larger amount of revenue than it was speculated by the diwan the assignees were allowed by sultan sekandar to keep it with them as the master of the revenue of the iktas they could assign certain lands to pious persons like the sultan the muktadi wajadar or the hakim were responsible for the administration as well as the maintenance of peace and order in his ikta if he was posted somewhere outside his ikta his representative administered it he exercised full military and executive power inside the ikta quite independent of the hakim or sarkar of the province the decline of the delhi sultanate during the 14th century was paradoxically paralleled by an evolution of social and administrative institution the ikta system we just saw is one such example the lodi dynasty not only retained these institutions but also revived the rapidly declining sultanate the state was considerably centralized in the sense that the muktadis or hakims 
had no clearly defined powers that could not be disturbed by the crown there was no constitutional or customary safeguard the laws and orders of the sultans prevailed all over the empire if it was powerful enough to enforce them and with this we shall end this episode here and in the next episode we will look at the nankara system of vijayanagara in depth we shall see how nankara system while it shared some similarities with the delhi sultanate's ikta system and the initial kakatiya version the system of vijayanagara was lot more evolved and robust i will tell you how the nankaras were a complex bundle of sovereignty claims that included not just revenue privileges and military obligations but much more than that i sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this full length episode if you did please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you're listening a huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show i hope to see you soon in the next episode till then this is narendra vikram your host and narrator signing off hope you have a great week ahead